Hi, you are listening to Stalwarts of Music with Aditya Veera. Today's episode is being partnered by Perpetual Buzz Experiences. It's an artist representation company with three basic but very lofty goals. They're the launchpad for indie musicians, helping them leverage their success and produce some of the most memorable experiences for music lovers. They also help generate funding for social causes and make sure people have a good time in the process. Do check out www.perpetualbuzz.com. We have yet another sponsor which is Wire Up Music Store, one of the finest music retail stores with state of art equipment, your one-stop solution for the best musical gear from guitars to ukulele and percussive instruments to classical instruments. Do check out their Instagram page on wireup India. My guest today is from the world of rock, jazz fusion and heavy metal music. He's a guitarist, music educator, known for his work with the Aristocrats, Asia GPS, the Young Punks and the Fellowship. He's a prolific guitar player who's had a very early music sensibility picking up the guitar at the age of three. He ended up learning music by ear listening to his favorite rock and roll records from the 50s. He was named Guitarist of the Year by Guitarist Magazine in 1993. He's played alongside some of the biggest names that include Hans Zimmer, Stephen Wilson and many more. He's also traveled down to India, played alongside the absolutely fabulous uh, Mohini Dey and Gino Banks. This man needs no further introduction. I'm delighted to welcome Man of the Hour, Mr. Guthrie Govin. Hello. Hi. Hi, Guthrie. How are you? How's it going? Yeah, so I guess I've successfully signed in. That, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. It's, it's so wonderful to have you on here. No, thanks for the invitation. Likewise. It, uh, I... I think it's an absolute privilege to be doing this with you. Well, you say that now. Let's see how it goes. All right. Uh, so I have a couple of interesting questions as part of our agenda today. So let's, let's get started with that. Okay. There's a great deal of work being done in the West in terms of music. If, if music be the food of love, as quoted, by, as, as quoted by Shakespeare... In what ways do you think music plays upon the mind and is able to influence and impact us? Well, I guess one good quote deserves another. Uh, Walter Pater, a famous critic, once said, all art aspires to the condition of music. I think there's something about the fact that music is so abstract and that it transcends the language barrier. And nobody really understands why it has the effect on us that it does. I guess when we hear music and we respond to it, we're drawing on this pool of experiences of every other piece of music we've ever heard and every kind of emotional response that we associate with each of those pieces of music. So uh, the way we react to what we hear is a very complex, nuanced thing. It's kind of a, a life story all of its own, the mm-hmm. way you develop your, your taste for certain kinds of music. Um, but undeniably, it's a very powerful thing. I've I see it at pretty much every gig. You see how music has the power to affect people and make them feel stuff that they couldn't feel if you were just speaking to them, however eloquent you might be. 
Wonderful. I'm going to take you uh, a little behind memory lane. I'm going to take you back memory la- behind me- memory lane. So uh, your dad was was an amazing musician, and and you were exposed to 50s rock and roll at quite an early age. You had that early sensibility towards understanding music at that age. How big was that environment that you grew up in, which is which has been an influence in your process, aesthetics, and your professionalism today? Um, well, the way I grew up was a huge part of what I do now. Uh, I have to add, my dad was not an amazing musician. I know this now. When I was three years old and I saw that he could play an Elvis song all the way from the beginning to the end, he could play the chords and sing the song at the same time. And it was incredible to me because prior to that, I had assumed music was this abstract thing that came through speakers. But just to see someone and someone from your own family, no less, um, being able to operate an instrument and generate music that was entertaining and recognizable all on his own. That kind of flipped a switch in my young, impressionable brain, I guess. As soon as you've seen that a human can do that, uh, something inside you says, well, maybe I should be doing that as well. Hmm. So something I often say is that the, the best and most important thing you can get from your parents when you're a kid, you know, in those formative years, it's not learning a specific set of chords or anything like that. It's just learning how to appreciate music and how to like music. And that was probably the biggest part of what happened to me by virtue of the way I grew up. Um, And my parents always listened to music. That was one big thing I took away from it. I would watch how they would react when they were listening to music that they liked. They could see what a powerful thing it was. Music was never wallpaper for those guys. You know, they would put on a record and then it was almost like this religious ceremony where they would concentrate on the music and allow it to speak to them. Uh, so I always knew from an early age, music is an important thing and it's worth caring about. And the more care you put into your relationship with music, the more you get back from it. Does that make sense? Totally, totally. I, I agree with you on that. But I have another follow-up question to whatever you said. Uh, it's pretty incredible that uh, you valued music and you understood its importance at such an early age. You know, the the sense of appreciating it at at an age like that is is very special. You know, not not everyone can uh, get into that kind of a zone in order to appreciate music at that level. Uh, were you completely self-taught, or did you have someone uh, who molded you? Uh, in terms of music, in terms of teaching you music? Well, my dad showed me five chords. Okay. So by by the age of four and a half or something like that, I I knew everything he knew. And at that point, uh, get your violins out. We were a poor family. Uh, It was never an option to, to pay a guitar teacher to come in and encourage the young hairy kid who was interested in music. So what my dad said was, well, you know everything I know. I had to stop learning chords when you showed up. Uh, but there's the record collection. So knock yourself out, kid. You know, just listen to stuff. And if there's something you like, try and guess how to play it. And if your guess doesn't sound the same as the record, guess again. <laughs> so that's basically how I spent the next few years of my life, just going through what I'm happy to report was a good record collection. There was a lot of Beatles and Stones and Cream and Hendrix and all that stuff. Uh, so I would pick out things that I liked and try to figure out how to play them. 
I'm sure I'm sure all of that paid off at the end of the day because whatever we hear today is just uh, so magnificent in terms of uh, the music that you put out. Oh, you're too kind. <laughs> but really, you the kind of musician you end up being is a product of how you spent those formative years. And different musicians end up with different strengths and weaknesses. And if, if I have a strength, to my mind, it's that my ear works fairly well because I never had any alternative to trusting my ear and trying to hone it and trying to get better at recognizing what I was hearing in real time and trying to replicate that. So, I mean, what I do now doesn't really sound like the stuff I was listening to back then, but that's where your initial understanding of the language comes from. And at the risk of being a little cliched here, music is a language. And I guess I learned that language of music in the same way that I learned English. You know, it was kind of a mother tongue. Mm-hmm. Just, I mean, that, that's how we learn our first language, right? Um, sure. You just listen to what other people are doing and you listen and you watch what kind of effect each word elicits from the world around you. And then you learn to make the same sound and you associate that sound with that result. <clears throat> so that was music for me rather than here's exercise four do it at this many BPM and then speed it up. That was never how I learned. Um, I don't know if that's the best way to learn or not. That's just the only way, that's, that's the only life story I have. So I try to embrace it. But I'm sure it worked for you. <laughs> I'm sure you got it, got it figured out by now too. That's, that's incredible. Yeah, well, you just work out what your, what, what your skill set is and try and make a musical life for yourself based around the things you can do and the things that come naturally to you. Uh, from whatever, whatever you've, you've spoken of, uh, from what I gauge, you have a very high intellect in terms of music. To what degree does it essentially reflect in your performance? Um, probably not at all. I think the, the best stuff that comes out of me in a performance is when I'm not thinking about anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you spend your whole life working on your ability to play whatever noise you might imagine in your head at any given moment. But then when it's showtime, uh, the, the time for thinking and being analytical is over. The time for just channeling takes over at that point, I think. So in Star Wars terms, I guess it's a bit like just use the force, something <laughs> like that. If I may ask, uh, so would you say, would it be right to say that you don't strategize what needs to be done? Like you don't do any of that? You, you're more of, uh, you, you do it on the fly? You're more of a spontaneous person in terms of this entire process? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm always much happier being spontaneous. All right. For at least some of my musical life, I try and seek out environments where being spontaneous is useful and beneficial. Mm-hmm. Speaking of your uh, musical journey, when did you feel that it actually worked for you or it actually happened for you? Uh, when you felt liberated from the mere technique of it, you were born in a family that was musically inclined, you studied English at some point uh, at, at St. Catherine's and, and you had, a, you had a, your stint as a music educator. There were all sorts of roots and by-roots that you took into the world of music. On this path, when did you have that moment of epiphany? Well, 
I don't, the idea of making it, the, this kind of goal of, right, I've, I've finally got there, I've succeeded, that was never really part of a, a big game plan for me. It's because okay. of the way I met music all those years ago. Um, for me, music was something that I did because I liked it, and it, mm -hmm. it felt good, and it was a way to be expressive that I, I couldn't really match using words in any language. And it just felt completely normal because mm -hmm. I spent so much time at such an early age, just steeped in music. So it was never really my goal for many years to try and take that natural thing and turn it into a profession or anything like that. Um, it would be like realizing that you're good at breathing and then thinking, well, I should monetize this. You know, it, <laughs> that, that approach never came to me for a long time. So for years I just played because it felt right and I didn't know any better and I couldn't imagine living life without playing music regularly and then when when you say epiphany i guess it was the point when i crashed out of university after a year there i was at oxford university that having Howdy. a place at this highly regarded educational establishment and thinking hang on most of the time i've been spending here i've devoted to playing five funk gigs a week and having private students and i'm not really reading the books that i should be reading uh, maybe this is the cosmos telling me to choose one path or the other. So it seemed like quite a kind of rock and roll and slightly romantic, drastic decision to take. It's like, you know what, I'm going to leave university and then I'll have focus. Then there will only be one path left. So I, I did that and then realized, okay, now I have no job. What do I do? Um, even at that point, uh, mm -hmm. Even that sense of panic didn't immediately inspire me to try and turn music into a living. Um, perhaps something at the back of my mind always nagged me with this idea. If, if you try to monetize this or make it a profession, you might cheapen what's special about it. You might make music less spiritual once you turn music into something that you think owes you something. So I worked at McDonald's for 18 months. Oh, wow. After 18 months of that, uh, you're not worried about cheapening something by monetizing it anymore. And I thought, well, I, can't, I can't keep doing this. I need to be an actual musician who makes a living doing this thing. I don't really want to work for anyone else. I don't want to have to do things I don't like doing in exchange for money. And of course, you, there's no normal career ladder in the world of music not like you can go to an employment center and say here are my qualifications what posts do you have available for me uh, you kind of have to make it up as you go along which takes different forms for different people that was a stage in my life where i was struggling to find enough like-minded musicians to kind of start a, a decent band and play live a lot so i thought well is there anything i can do that comes naturally to me and doesn't come naturally to a lot of other people Maybe that could be like a unique selling point and I could somehow turn that into a job. And then it kind of came to me. I've been working out everything I know by ear since I was oh, wow. a tiny person. So how could I turn that into something useful? And then I thought, well, maybe transcribing for a guitar magazine. Because <laughs> um, I used to read guitar magazines and at the back they would have pages and pages of music notation for something which to me didn't need to be notated and i guess i realized at that point not everyone has spent 
their musical life working on their ear as much. Some people do need these transcriptions, otherwise they'll never be able to work out how to play the song. So that was when I decided to transcribe the hardest thing I could think of, which was a solo by the late, great Sean Lane. And oh, wow. I sent it to a guitar magazine and just said, like, hi, you don't know me, but I can do this. Do you have any work for people who can do this? And they printed it. And then the next month they said, here's something else. Do you want to transcribe that? And we'll print it and we'll give you some money for food and so forth. So gradually I became someone who was making a living out of music in a slightly unusual way. And all of the rest of my story pretty much snowballed from that. Because if, if you're the stunt transcriber for one of the guitar magazines, after a while, some local music schools will contact you and say, hey, we've, we've seen what you can do. We like you. <laughs> Would you like to come to our school and teach for one day a week? And then right. started teaching at some schools. And then I had this amazing brainwave of instead of just hanging out with all the other guitar teachers and talking about our favorite solos, maybe you should get to know the other people who work in the music school. So nice. I started to connect more with producers and drummers and things like that. And suddenly I found that I was in the band Asia oh, because the head yeah. of drums at one of the music schools where I was working was also drumming with the band Asia. So there was that band, uh, I think around 1999, uh, running horrendously over, <laughs> over budget and over their time frame, trying to finish this ambitious album. Mm -hmm. and a whole bunch of the guitar players they'd invited to do guest slots. Kind of cool, but hard to pin down players like Brian May and Steve Lukather and things like that. Uh, the, the band basically panicked because all of the people they were hoping they could get weren't mm -hmm. available, and the record company were becoming increasingly impatient and threatening. Uh, so, so they asked this guy who was drumming with them, it's like, do you know any guitar player who can do a bunch of different things? Maybe he could come in and like, approximate what we were hoping those players would do. Mm -hmm. So I went to their studio for a week and played lots of guitar stuff in the styles of whoever they wanted to some extent, mixed with a little bit of me and my flavor. And then before I knew it, I was in a proper band. Had a tour bus and flew really? to other countries and stuff. It's like, hang on, I'm a touring musician now. It was never part of a, a strict business plan. Maybe it would have happened sooner if I'd had a, more of a business head screwed onto my scrawny shoulders. But, uh, but that, that's how it happened. Quite a, quite an interesting journey. Maybe uh, they should shoot a documentary on this. It, it's 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 so interesting in the sense that you've had uh, your share of ups and downs, and then. You've been self-motivated and uh, you had a vision which was to be a musician and uh, you're, chasing, you're chasing your passion today and you're putting out incredible music uh, for people across the world and uh, I think uh, there's, there's no better sense of satisfaction when uh, you know, people from different parts of the world appreciate uh, your musical abilities. I think that's, that's the best way to, uh, you know, Pave your path towards music. Yeah, no, it's it's a great life. I'm glad it happened to me, and I can't imagine doing anything else now. Uh, I can't even imagine anyone else wanting to employ me to do anything else by this stage. So, <laughs> fortunately, I feel safe. It's like there's nothing else I can do. So I guess there's nothing else I will do from this point on. 
Wonderful. I'd like to understand uh, if you have or if you if you've ever experienced a dimension of spirituality. Uh, in case you have one, uh, what are some of the techniques of spirituality that you embody? Um, I'm not the most spiritual person in the traditional sense. Probably the, okay. the closest I get to having a window into a spiritual world is just music. All right. Uh, when I hear other people talking about the, the benefits that they get from meditation and activities of that nature, I think, hang on, some of this sounds familiar. That sounds like why I like playing. Um, I guess that idea of just being in the zone, and it, it happens to all musicians some of the time, but not all of the time, when you're just playing, and then you realize, hang on, I'm really not thinking about anything else. All, all of me is being channeled into this noise that I'm making collectively with other people. And it, it feels kind of spiritual, but I, I also wonder if, if you try and pin it down too much, if you try and define it too mm. much, you somehow lose the thing in the process. So I've always been happy just to accept that's what music feels like, that's a special place that I can go to. Um, but without trying to understand it too much i just accept music for what it is and what it what it can bring for me fair enough you play with an intensity that a lot of aspiring musicians strive to live up to whenever whenever i've watched videos of you online there's a lot of power and a lot of showmanship that you display where do you harness all of this from and how do you express that in terms of your guitar playing well, I I definitely don't think about what it looks like mm -hmm. at all. Um, I know for some people, they end up in a, a field of musical performance where the theater of it, the almost circus aspect, is right up there with the musical content because what you're delivering is <clears throat> like a multi-sense performance and it has to look a certain way and sound a certain way and a degree of acting ability is required. And that never felt like something I would be able to do. And so I just get up there and play. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I think when I'm playing, there's, just the, there's a version of what I'm playing that I can hear in my head, which is generally pretty good. And then there's what you actually hear coming through my amp, which is never as good. So even if other people might be enjoying it or hearing somebody who's been playing for 10 years longer than they have doing something that they can't do. Still, my, my perception of it is I'm trying really hard here because if I could share the version of this idea that I'm hearing in my head, pe people would probably like that. And you never really get that. You never match what you're trying to do. But that kind of pursuit of seeing how close to that you can get is... You know, it burns up a lot of calories. <laughs> if I look like I'm trying hard or exerting myself or something like that on stage, it's not because what I'm doing is necessarily hard mm -hmm. to play. I mean, someone else could transcribe it and learn how to play it and play it using a lot less energy. But that uh, kind of intensity thing just comes from trying as hard as you can because you care about it and you want to see how good you can make it sound. Right. I mean, there, there are other things that happen subconsciously. And the classic one is the wah-wah face. <laughs> um, 
I guess you you know the thing I mean when you're doing that sort of whack chicka whack chicka <laughs> with yeah. a wah wah pedal. If your mouth yeah. isn't doing a goldfish impersonation, it means I don't believe you. You have no soul. <laughs> you're not feeling the music. Um, it's it's one of the most obvious examples I can think of of you know wh- whereby a, a musician physically embodies the sound that they're trying to make. Um, so if somebody cared about what they looked like, they would probably try to rein that in. It's like, I need to teach myself not to do the goldfish face because it looks ridiculous. <laughs> but I'm very much from the camp of like embrace the goldfish face. If that's what you look like when you're sounding good and do that <laughs> for better or for worse. Right. I like the references that you slipped in, like very, very thoughtful. <laughs> Wonderful way to express things. Uh, Gatri, if I may ask, there's something mystical about music. Does that sort of create a proclivity of interest in other aspects of the mystical for someone like you? Um, I'm not sure I have a, a good answer to that. Um, I can only rewind to some of the stuff I said about spirituality. I would say the, the same about mystical mm-hmm. things. Um, I don't pretend to understand any of those dimensions in any way other than through the portal of music. And I just accept those things for what they are as I perceive them. I I use long words sometimes, but I do believe in not overanalyzing something for fear of somehow ruining it. Right. Could you try and lead us through... Gatri, the creator, the, the impulses, the processes as they happen. How, like you said, uh, most of it is not strategized. You're more of uh, a spontaneous person. We'd like to know a little more uh, about your creative process in terms of music, uh, about uh, your uh, aspirations, about your uh, vision, about some of the creative ideas or the creative juices that you sort of use for this entire process. Well, I guess there are two. <clears throat> two different ways to look at all this because I talk about being spontaneous mm-hmm. and I enjoy being spontaneous, but that only works in real time. That's right. great if you're on a stage and you're in the middle of the song and you're in that section where your your mission is just to remember roughly what the chord progression is, but mainly to interact with your band members and to try and surprise your bandmates and to try and surprise each other and see how quickly you can react to what what you're hearing going on around you. I love all that, but it's not the whole story because if people just did that all the time, they would have a great time, but they would never write any music. And what's interesting to me is I think the process of improvising is the same as the process of composing, but you're doing it in real time. So if you kind of turn that around, conversely, um, composing is just improvising really slowly and carefully with the added luxury of having an eraser on the end of the pencil. If you kind of improvise <laughs> an idea and then regret it, it's not too late to change it because no one's heard it yet. Uh, so the, those two different sides of creating are related. Uh, I enjoy both of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, with, the, the, with the composing thing, the fact that it's not in real time means I sometimes find it hard to commit. I sometimes find it hard to think, well, this version of the idea I was chasing is done. It's finished now. That's as good as that idea will get. Um, there is this nagging voice somewhere inside my cranium that says, well, maybe, maybe, you, maybe it could be better. And 
sometimes that voice is right. Sometimes that voice is just a distraction and it kind of drowns out the purity of the creative uh, spark that, that started the, the composition. So it's important to know when to stop with that perfectionism thing. That's right. probably one of the reasons why I'm not more prolific as a writer than I am. Because I'm very fussy about these things and I'm always reluctant to accept that something might be finished. And the longer you spend on something, the more you, you find weaknesses in it. Right. So it's all about finding a, a happy balance where really? you can feel like you tried hard, but you, you concluded the creative process before you killed whatever it was that got you excited about it in the first place. Uh, and the other thing that motivates me just as a writer of music is the, the simple questions. Like, what would I like to hear right now? And mm -hmm. sometimes it's easy. Sometimes you just want to hear Abbey Road by the Beatles, in which case you listen to that. But the exciting stuff compositionally happens where you think, well, I want to hear something that's a bit like this and I don't know where else to find it. And for me, that's one of the best reasons to try to start writing a piece of music because it's something that you would like to hear yourself and it doesn't exist yet. And that automatically kind of eliminates any danger of ripping anyone off, <laughs> I think. Uh, I'm really interested in making sure anything I write doesn't sound like something that already exists. Even though sometimes you have to reference things that already exist sure. for, the, for the music to make sense. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you on the part where you, where you said that it doesn't sort of make sense to sort of overthink or uh, overdo certain parts when it comes to music. It, it's very essential to know where to draw the line. And I, I completely agree with you on that particular point when you, when you said that uh, there, is, there is a limit, there's a certain threshold that you sort of uh, live up to and then you go uh, by it, which is a very cool thing. Yeah, I mean, traditionally people describe that as the law of diminishing returns. <laughs> every extra hour you spend on something will yield a smaller percentage of improvement than the hour before. But I think it's actually more dangerous than that. After a while, you could spend another hour and make your idea worse and you've completely lost perspective and you don't know you're making it worse. And this, this happens in the studio when I'm doing take after take of solos. Uh, I get sucked into this kind of weird momentum where I just feel I have to keep going and have to keep doing more takes and more takes and more takes. And everyone else in the studio is exasperated. And they go, look, take three was great. What are you doing? <laughs> but while I'm in that zone, I can't allow myself to think that they might be right. Uh, it's like if you feel strongly enough that you can do better, it's hard to switch off. But m most of the time, the other guys in the studio are right because they have just enough distance from what you're doing. They can't hear how it sounds in your head. And uh, it's a recurring studio story for me to do like a billion takes and then use one of the first two or three. It's all part of the process, right? Right. Uh, on that note, someone was asking about the new Aristocrats album. Do you want to tell them about the one with the Primus Chamber Orchestra? I would very much like to do that. Uh, I am no stranger to the concept of promotion. Mm. And I think what we have here is kind of a unique album. Mm -hmm. I'm incredibly happy that even while the lockdown was going on, we still found something 
to do that had real artistic merit. And it all started completely by accident. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we, we found a video somewhere online of this young Polish orchestra playing this insane, complex, yet true to the, the spirit of the original arrangement of my song Culture Clash. So we kind of shared that amongst the three of us in the aristocrats, and we all basically responded in the same way, which was holy cow. Uh, this is a completely different take on our music, but the intent is the same. Who would have thought there would be an orchestra somewhere in Poland who, who had heard of the band, and out of all the music they'd ever heard, they decided this is something that we want to cover. Uh, so we later discovered, yeah, it's, it's a young but very, on the one hand, very technically capable orchestra, but on the other hand, also a very fiery rock and roll kind of orchestra. They go for it sure. and they play. Uh, and they have an arranger called Wojtek Lemanski. Right. Um, I'm ashamed to say I was unfamiliar with his work when we first came across this, but I looked into it a bit. It turns out he's kind of a big deal in Poland. He's a highly regarded composer of film music and TV music and stuff like that. Um, so it was his arrangement. And we thought, okay, if, if this guy understands our music to that extent, we should probably reach out and to see if he wants to work with us properly. And lo and behold, a plot was hatched to make a collaborative album. So then we thought, how are we going to do this? Um, there's a lockdown. Uh, two aristocrats are in California. One aristocrat is in London. The orchestra is in Poland. And apparently there's some kind of virus going around. And nobody's allowed to go anywhere or do anything anymore. <laughs> so we kind of used that time by like taking a bunch of songs from every stage in our back catalogue and just bouncing ideas around. So in the end, we had orchestrations for actually more songs than what you hear on the album. Um, but we whittled it down to the ones that we thought really told a story for the album as a whole and the ones that seemed to present the, the greatest sense of variety between one track and the next. Um, at first, we were a little concerned that people would perceive it as a gimmick and that after hearing three songs of okay we get it the aristocrats have some strings on their songs now maybe they would grow weary of it we were determined not to let that happen because we really saw potential in this concept it never felt like if we put some strings on our songs it will make us sound more expensive it really was more of a meeting of minds thing we wanted to celebrate this weird connection that we seem to have with Wojtek, the, the arranger, the idea that he understood our music so well. Like we learned, for instance, that he'd come to an aristocrats gig in Poland with some of his, his kids mm. many years earlier. And one of the kids is now playing cello in the orchestra. Wow. So it's like, okay, we're you know, more connected than we would have thought possible. We have to do something that kind of showcases that connection and see where it leads. So Wojtek would orchestrate some ideas over our music and then we would have suggestions about sometimes a different chord here or there or a different dynamic approach or different textural approach. Um, I, can't, I can't credit Wojtek enough. He did so many amazing things to enhance the music that was already there. <clears throat> so once we'd finally settled on these arrangements that we thought brought out the best in the concept and in our music, the next challenge was, how do we record an orchestra? Mm -hmm. um, 
at this point, I, sh I should add, there was something really cool that came out of us keeping the original recorded versions from our previous albums, because there was a lot of material on there, a lot of moments on those performances, which were spontaneous, which would never happen more than once. But if you give that to an orchestrator, he has the option to kind of work around that and kind of weave the strings around the things that we were making up at the time in such a way that when you finish, when you hear the finished product, it sounds like everybody knew what was going to happen. But it's like taking those spontaneous moments and kind of crystallizing them, making them mm -hmm. sound more purposeful. Um, this is stuff that would never have happened even if we'd had the luxury of having the band and the orchestra in the room at the same time. Because the orchestra obviously need to have their sheet music. They need to be locked in on performing the same arrangement. Uh, so the, the way we put everything together actually worked out for the best, right? I think. And so rewinding a little bit, the next part of the story was how can we record the orchestra? And they uh -huh. were adamant that they wanted to be a band in a room. Oh, wow. They, they didn't want to stay in their apartments and record individual string parts with a click track and then put it together. It's like, no, we don't do that. We're an orchestra. We're one living, breathing thing. We need to find somewhere where we can all be in a building together. Mm -hmm. and kind of fill the whole room with the sound of all of us playing. And we really understood that and related to that because that's what bands do. So we had to play the waiting game a little bit. Uh, the lockdown kind of waxed and waned a few times in its intensity, but somehow they found an opportunity to get together mm -hmm. in a big studio and record this stuff the way they had always wanted to, like, as a live orchestra. So I, th I think you can hear that energy on the finished product. Um, I, I must so say to summarize, that... Everyone listening to this should check this mm -hmm. album out. For sure, for sure. I must say that I, I had the privilege to listen to a private stream of the album. Uh, Ryan shared it with me. And in fact, it was, it was on my birthday. You guys made my birthday so very special. Yeah, I could... Happy birthday. <laughs> it, it, was, it was amazing, man. It, it was so... It was so fabulous to listen to the entire, uh, you know, all the stuff that you put out over the years, uh, a culmination of all of that with an orchestra. It was absolutely fabulous. I think it, it, it's, uh, it's going to be like a groundbreaking uh, album indeed for uh, all the listeners out there. Well, I, I hope people respond to it as well as we did. Um, yeah. I'm being completely yeah. honest here when I say we had so many just amazing mm -hmm. moments whilst we were yeah. putting this together. Yeah. And many of them, when we heard Voitech's original kind of MIDI arrangements, mm -hmm. he would just program stuff and put it over the top of our song and then send us an MP3. And we would all be just bowled over. Like, wow, my, my song sounds like this now. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. If you spend all that time trying to whittle an arrangement down so that you can play it live yeah. with just guitar, bass and drums, I mean, yeah. you always have to make sacrifices. I think all of us as composers can hear other layers in our heads. For sure. It's always been our mission statement with the band, just to, to keep it performable. Right. So we're always trying to economize how the arrangement works you know, in various ways. For my part, I punish Brian, I guess. I write these <laughs> unnecessary, complicated, nine-octave-wide oh, bass wow. lines just to compensate for the fact that no one is playing the chords while I'm playing the melody and things like that. But then to hear it all stretched out, it's like now we have 20-something instruments. <laughs> now we can hear 
all these extra layers of nuance in the music. And yeah, they, they were special moments for all of us in the band when we heard these ideas and realized, okay, this guy kind of gets the song and we get the guy who's doing the orchestrating, but we never thought it would be like this. So yeah, we're, we're delighted. Hopefully people out there will resonate with that and also be delighted. I so guess we'll see. It's Any out on June, June 6th? When is it likely to Something be out? Something like that. It's oh, early yeah. June. I can't early remember okay. the exact okay. date. But yeah, the 6th sounds about right. All right. I'd like to understand your affinity towards Indian musical styles. In one of your interviews earlier, you had mentioned about your experience watching Debashish Bhattacharya at the Adelaide yeah. Guitar Festival that drew you into Indian classical music. Tell us a little bit about that experience. Um, well, for me, that whole discovery, the slow discovery of Indian music, mm -hmm. probably happened in two phases. And one would be the stuff you hear in Indian restaurants, if you go to the right one. Like, I'm in the UK, we have <clears throat> quite a lot of Indian restaurants. <laughs> I think chicken tikka masala is our national dish, and I know it's not authentic, <laughs> but you know there's a big tradition where I live of going out for Indian food, lovely, or in some cases Pakistani food or Bangladeshi food. But uh, some sometimes you just hear panpipes playing the music of Adele or something like that. But then if you get lucky, you'll hear real Indian classical music. So I was accustomed to some of the, some of those flavors in a kind of wallpaper context. It's like nice things are going on in the background while I'm enjoying this scaldingly spicy food. Um, <laughs> and it always intrigued me that, that some of the instruments were making sounds that I just don't hear Western instruments making. So right. part, part one of that discovery for me was more kind of textural and sonic. Like, well, there's something amazing about the, the sound of the bansuri or the, the way it glides between notes. But then the, the second stage when I realized, hang on, this is something that's actually relevant to what I do if I choose to make it as such, um, was hearing John McLaughlin, I guess in late 80s or early 90s. Yeah. John McLaughlin had this phase of playing with Trilok Gertu. Um, there's, there's a studio album I really love called K Alegria. And mm -hmm. there's also a live album called Live at the Royal Festival Hall. Are you are you talking about Shakti? Are you talking about the in No, actually. Somehow I missed Shakti. This okay. was this was John McLaughlin during his solo career. Ma Mahavishnu? Was it Maha the Mahavishnu Orchestra phase? Well, they were touching on a lot of that stuff. I, I missed out on the, the true Indianness, the, the true level right. of Indian influence that right. was in that music. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but if I sense you're a man who likes stories about epiphanies. And for <laughs> me, the epiphany really was John McLaughlin with Trilok Gertu. Okay. Hearing this is someone doing all of the crazy kind of Carnatic stuff, and it fits somehow in the context of Western fusion. Lovely. I'm guessing quite a lot of people who play instrumental music and are in roughly my age demographic would have mm -hmm. a similar story. I think quite a few of us heard that album and thought, Wow, I have no idea what's happening there, but I need to understand it. It's amazing. 
it's kind of appealing on a technical level, but also it's just exhilarating. It's exciting. Mm-hmm. Tell me more. And that, of course, is the point where you you start doing research. This was before the internet or anything like that. And trying to find people who were willing to explain to me how all this stuff works, it it was very hard. I, I couldn't find books about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I sense, like, subsequently, I've been to India a number of times, and I tried to yeah. kind of hunt down people who might be able to help me with this. And mm-hmm. they, they all kind of admit we don't like to write stuff down. This is more of a an oral tradition for us. We like to tell you how it works right. and if you can't get it you're not ready for it um, <laughs> so i'm i continue to be a dabbler oh wow no way nowhere near ready to say right here's here's my carnatic song that i just wrote so i hope you enjoy it bangalore you know <laughs> because they <laughs> won't um but it's more that just listening to like, the rhythmic side of things does expand your mind and opens you up to new for possibilities sure. Um, it's a good polyrhythmic part of the food group. And melodically, I just try to let some of that sink in through osmosis. I don't try too hard to kind of transcribe a whole sitar solo or anything like that. But my Mm. favorite melodic thing about Indian music is just what happens in between the notes. Because that Western music doesn't concentrate even nearly as much. On like how you get from note A to note B, and what kind of curve the glissando takes, and how the the trills work, and all the melismas and stuff like that. So I just try and listen to that stuff and hope that some of it will get absorbed, because any time you learn something new, I think it starts as a something in your consciousness, and then you're not ready to use it yet. But after a while, you absorb it a bit deeper you internalize it more thoroughly and then it's in your subconscious and then you can just draw on it when you feel it's the right time to do that. Um, the, the area of my playing where it's had the most impact is probably slide playing. Oh, wow. Um, so yeah, just every now and then and I'll, I'll find myself playing a note which sounds Indian to me. <laughs> and, and I'm happy with that. I'm happy if the flavors of things I like listening to just gradually reveal themselves in what I do rather than forcing it. You know, there's no rush with any of this. Some of the musical circles that you're part of, uh, for example, the Hans Zimmer Orchestra, uh, has some of the most prolific musicians from across the world. In a setup as, as huge as that, how do you find your place, allow the place for somebody else and how do you make sure that there's no ego clash or competition that might get in the way when you're playing in a setup like that? Um, well, I'll field question number two first. Mm-hmm. Very, very ego- easy to avoid ego clashes in a band like that because everyone is really good at something. Okay. But the something that they're good at is different All for right. each person. So nobody <laughs> gets to be the prima donna. Um, the, the range of skill sets in that band is insane. Everyone has something that they do preposterously well that is not needed for the material in Hans's set. And I think Hans likes that kind of chemistry when he's putting a band together. He has a really good instinct for how to combine people so that good things will happen. Um, But someone made a playlist at the end of our last tour. It's like, here's a Spotify playlist with one song featuring each person in the band. And it's the most 
hilariously eclectic playlist you ever heard. But really, mm -hmm. who, who would think of starting a band with these people all in the same room? There's no way that could work. But actually, it does. And again, there's so much mutual respect and like learning from each other and all of that good stuff. So that answers your second question. The first one, if I'm not mistaken, was like, how do you find a way to, to slot your instrument into that equation? That's right. Um, I feel that Hans hired me and indeed a lot of us, uh, not just for any kind of technical prowess that we might have. I think he hired us for our instincts. I think when he when he's looking for a guitar player, he's not just looking for someone who operates a guitar. He's looking for an ambassador for the instrument, like someone who understands what the instrument does well, yeah. someone who understands what it can do and what it can't do. And I think he's trusting that that person will use those instincts. So he's never really micromanaged anything that I, I play in that. He'll, he'll tell me, okay, here, it would be good if you doubled the cello line or whatever. Uh, but a lot of the time, he seems to just trust me to come up with something. And once he said to me, like, in my early days of being in that band, when I was very anxious and feeling like I might be a fish out of water, it's like, what if, what if I don't belong in this band? And he doesn't realize yet. Um, so I said to him, look, I, I will need some, some feedback here. If you tell me what it is that you're expecting my instrument to do, then I can appear professional by showing up with some ideas. Um, I don't want to waste your time. I don't want you to be disappointed. And he just said, look, I trust you. That's why you're here. So do what you think is right. And if I disagree, I will tell you. <laughs> so suddenly this terrifying gig became a liberating gig. And a lot of the time I feel like it, the music doesn't need regular guitar. But fortunately, regular guitar isn't everything that I want to do anyhow. Um, I've become more kind of interested in certain sound designy aspects mm -hmm. of getting noises out of the guitar over the last few years. So in, in Hans's band, a lot of Ebo stuff. I, I play a lot of slide. Uh, sometimes I'm programming horrible sounds on an Axifex. Just something that I think will sit well with the music. Yeah. And making decisions like that becomes a lot easier as soon as you abandon the idea of, I have to be the hotshot guitar player in this band. I have to make sure everyone notices how great I am at playing guitar. That kind of mindset would stand in the way. Sure. If you just think, what would I like to hear a guitar doing here? And what do I have in my toolkit that might help me get close to that sound? Uh, then it's just like a fun creative outlet that doesn't really overlap with anything else that I do. And I'm loving it. Right. Yeah. How important is it for uh, guitar players to study compositions, learn different set of instruments and explore different musical styles? I, I'm always reluctant to answer those questions. I only know what it's like to be this guitar player, you know, the one that's inside me. Uh -huh. And I'm very reluctant to prescribe a set of priorities to anyone else. I think right. all that matters is if you're playing, are you having a good time yeah. with your guitar relationship? You know, do you feel like you're expressing yourself? Do you feel like you're growing? Everyone has a different end goal. And mm -hmm. 
I can add to that. The goal does keep moving as well. You never really reach the goal. It keeps yeah. running away from you. And you learn new stuff about yourself whilst chasing this ever-moving endpoint. Yeah, I'm sure it takes more than a lifetime to <laughs> master one particular instrument. I, I, I know people who decided pretty early on, I know what I want to do. I want to be a really good bebop player, for okay. instance, or okay. I want to be in a really good rock band. Right. Um, if you have that kind of specific target that you're working towards, then a lot of the other questions just evaporate because you, you know what the end result should sound like. And then you can listen to what you sound like now and you know what needs to change. Um, so if someone is very focused stylistically or they have a very clear idea what kind of guitar player they're trying to be, then my set of rules probably wouldn't work for them. No. Um, my thing with embracing different styles and all of that is really just a short attention span. <laughs> I, I, I get distracted by lots of nice things that I hear in different fields of music. Right. And I feel that for me personally, it would be a shame to miss out on any of that stuff by committing just to one thing. Uh, so my reasoning is, like for this particular journey that I'm on, mm -hmm. if I just allow things to jump out at me, from any style of music. So, oh, I like the rhythmic thing that happened there, or I, I like the sonic thing that happened in that completely different field of music. You're kind of crafting your own style based on everything that you naturally warmed to when you heard it. Mm -hmm. And I'm happy to leave that as a pretty abstract process. And it's always nice if someone hears me play and they say, yeah, that could only be that guy. That's a nice end result. You know, if you can be eclectic and confused and distracted, but at the end yeah. of the whole process, people still know it's you. Uh, this, this, is a, this is a common question that I ask in most of my interviews. Uh, so my question is, uh, down in the distant horizon, what would you want to be remembered as? I, I don't know. I never <laughs> really think of that. But... I guess I would just want to leave some music behind that I was happy with, and then if anyone agrees with me and has tastes that overlap with mine, maybe they'll remember the music, and there'll be some kind of ongoing connection that way. Yeah. Yeah. But you don't get to choose how people remember your music. All you can do is make the music as best you can and as true to yourself as you can, and then let people decide how they feel about it. Yeah. This is true during this lifetime and throughout the next. Lovely. That's quite a, quite a lovely take to it. So now we're going to move to an interesting segment. This is the last segment of our interview where I'm going to be asking you some spontaneous questions, very concise questions, and, and, and you don't have too much time to think. All right? You've you got to be very spontaneous with your answers. All right? The first question for you, Gatri. Uh, what is your idea of an all-star jazz fusion band and who'd be in it dead or alive you can choose people from any era uh, i'm i'm going to wriggle out of that one because i know from experience sometimes the bands that you think will work really well because it's they have all of your favorite components mm -hmm. don't sound that good in real life um, i don't think you can undervalue the idea of chemistry uh, it's such a danger to say, if I just get the best bass player and the best drummer and my favorite guitar player, just think of the fireworks that will happen. Sometimes nothing happens. Right. And then you might have another band with 
relatively unremarkable players who just happen Stand to gel with each other. Yeah. And when when they get into a rehearsal room, they're working on their connection rather than how good they are individually. So any band I could make up probably wouldn't sound as good as we think. Fair enough. Sorry Fair to enough. wriggle out like that. That's all right. That's all right. My next question for you. What is that one song that always makes you cry when you listen to it? Um, okay, you said spontaneous. Right now, Claire de Lune is somewhere up there, the Debussy thing. Okay. That, that does something special to me. All right. What is your favorite guilty pleasure song, on the contrary? Um, I don't know. Gu- guilty is such a relative thing. I like The Carpenters. I like some ABBA. Is, uh-huh. is, is that shocking enough for you? Good enough, good enough. <laughs> I, I can't go more shocking than that, I don't think. All right. If you could be other things apart from being a musician, what might you be? I, I can't imagine. I, I really can't. In a parallel universe, I would have stayed at Oxford University and done all of that. I'd probably be teaching people how to have English degrees at Oxford University. All right. Maybe I would have ended up being a writer or something like that. A, a writer? Did you say a writer? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, next question for you. Uh, what is your favorite cuisine? What's the favorite kind of food you enjoy? Yours. Okay. Okay. So you, you could be a little more specific. If you could drill down, what, 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 kind, of, uh, what kind of food? Do you like North Indian? you like South Indian food? What, what's your I favorite? Just- I think I prefer the South Indian thing in the sense it's, it seems uh-huh. a little more aggressively spicy, but also it's a bit more dry. And to uh-huh. me, the, the stuff you find in the north, there's more ghee. It's more uh-huh. of a kind of heavy comfort food kind of thing. You yeah. feel more sleepy afterwards. Sometimes <laughs> that's what you want. Yeah. yeah. Sure. If I had to stick a pin in a map right now, it would be somewhere down south. <laughs> Lovely. Lovely. Did I say the wrong thing? No, of course, of course not. Like uh, we, we love we love Indian food. We love all varieties of Indian food, and that's the beauty of India. Like, we've got like several many states. We've got like different cultures with amazing food to try, and and different musical styles. And that's what makes India so diverse in the sense. Yeah. Yeah, it's a whole subcontinent. You got that. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot going on. My next question for you, uh, what are some of the principles uh, as a music educator that you embody now for, for yourself and for your students as a music educator? Well, I've really tried to wriggle out of being a music educator. Okay. I've tried to like, tone down the amount of YouTube videos I do and things like that. And right. I, I stopped doing private lessons many years ago because I okay. started to feel like an imposter. It's like nobody right. taught me, so I don't really, well, I, I kind of know what I'm doing, but I don't know how I'm doing it half the time. So there are, there are things that come naturally to me that I find it hard to share mm-hmm. with other people. Okay. Um, because there was never an educational process that codified it and defined it specifically. Um, the thing I do still do from time to time is guitar clinics, where you have a room full of people and I get to stand up on a stage Right. Uh, play some tricks for five minutes and then just pontificate. It's like, this is what being a musician is all about for me. This is what works in my learning process. Maybe it works for you, maybe it doesn't. And the only way I can really feel useful is to try and 
teach people how to teach themselves. So I can mm. take what, the life story that I have and try and channel it in that way. Um, so yeah, yeah. I, I can't tell people how to learn effectively right. in any other method. I only know my life story. Yeah. So what, what choice do I have but to be true to that? Uh, one last question for you. Does it take to be a good human being in order to make good music? I like to think so. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if that's true. Uh, part of me subscribes to that you should never meet your heroes thing. Mm -hmm. But I will say this. If you're a musician, basically you, you have a, a victimless job. You're not ripping anyone off. You're not lying to anyone or robbing anyone. You're being as honest as it's possible to be. And in most cases, you have to be in a band. You need to have relationships with people in your band where you accommodate each other and respect each other and mm -hmm. all of that stuff. Otherwise, the band will disintegrate. So I think a lot right. of good you know, personal skills are required just to, to maintain a band. Um, so my, my inner hippie likes to think, yeah, people who play music are good people. And most of the time, I think that holds true in my experience. Right. So as we continue to celebrate a dozen uh, marvelous musical pieces, the showmanship that you've displayed in terms of your guitar abilities, your uh, musical compositions, it plays a very rich and intense life that all of us sort of await. On that note, uh, thank you so much for tuning in, giving me this privilege. It's been a, it's been a great honor talking to you. And before, we, before you leave, uh, this interview is also going to be aired on uh, two incredible radio stations in India, Big FM Shillong, Big FM Azol, and it's, it's going to be part of my new audio podcast which is called Stalwarts of Music with Aditya Veera, which is all set for launch in the next couple of weeks. So I'd like you to give a closing note for the people of India and all the aspiring musicians from across the world who are listening to this podcast. Uh, where do I begin? Okay. Uh, greetings, splendid people of India. This is Guthrie Govan here. Uh, can't wait to come back and play in your country again as soon as it's feasible once again after all the weirdness of the last couple of years so in the meantime keep listening to music and keep doing the voodoo that you do see you soon and cheers thank you thank you Gatri, once again for uh, tuning in and please do stay in touch I'd, I'd love to share some nice music from india with you and uh, yeah we, we will we will soon catch up once you're in india i'd love to meet you yeah, nice one. Uh, thank you for an interview that was a little bit cerebral and not what your funniest tour stories. It's a, it a nice change of pace. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thanks. Means a lot coming from you, Katri. Oh, cheers, man. All right, then. Take care. Stay safe. You bye too. Bye. Nice one. All right. Bye. Bye.